Church family, it is fantastic to have you with us today. If you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible on the tables that you passed coming in today, uh, there are some free ones. You could grab one now or on your way out, take one, and then you will have one as a gift from our church. This time last year, on uh, Easter of 2020, uh, I stood in this room with just a few people. Our media team who was uh, producing it and put it online, a couple of people from worship and a photographer from the Virginia Pilot. And uh, little did we know I would end up on the front page of the Virginia Pilot in a completely empty worship center preaching on Easter Sunday. Uh, I keep that picture in my office as a reminder of this, that it is good to gather with the people of God. And so I am, I cannot tell you how excited I've been this week knowing that I was going to be preaching twice to a room full of people. So whatever reason you've gathered here, whether you uh, regularly attend our church, someone invited you, or you saw an advertisement that brought you here, we want you to know we're glad that you're here to worship and to celebrate the resurrection with us on this Easter. I'll now invite you to stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 22. We stand, if you're new with us, this is a custom in our church. We do this because we believe this is God's word. So we stand in reverence for it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from him, from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the picture of the gospel that we just witnessed together. For Caitlin, her profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, her obedience to you. Let that be a reminder to us, that visual image as we approach your word today. Father, by the power of your spirit, will you illuminate our hearts? Let us recognize that this is truth and that we celebrate and worship a risen Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Friends, I am keenly aware most Sundays because of the skeptical nature of our modern society, but especially on days like Easter, that there are people listening to me who will very likely think that is impossible. You'll hear me preach about Jesus this morning. Maybe you've heard me preach about Jesus week after week. This isn't just about those who may find themselves in this place for the first time. And you think, I just don't know how that could be true. I don't know how that could at all be possible. If that's you this morning, I want you to lean in and listen close for just a minute. If you think that it is impossible for Jesus to be God and man, if you think it's impossible for Jesus to die and be resurrected, if you think it's impossible for sinful man to be right with God, you are correct. What we've been singing about this morning is impossible. What we will explore from the scriptures today is impossible. What Christians are gathered around the world to celebrate today and have been doing on Easter Sundays for nearly the last 2,000 years is 100% impossible. But if you'll hear me out for the next half hour or so, I can promise you this. This impossible message will be the greatest news you will have ever heard if you will but listen and understand that what with man is impossible with God is not. So we begin with the impossible Jesus of Nazareth. Let me just introduce the text quickly. In Acts chapter two, this is on a day known as Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast of the Jews uh, 50 days after Passover. And that timeline is somewhat important because Jesus was crucified on the beginning of Passover raised from the dead three days later, stayed for about 40 days with his disciples and then ascended to heaven. So it's about a week that the disciples have been without Jesus. They're gathered together, Luke tells us, about 120 of them. That's about all the followers of Jesus that existed in the world at that point, about 120. They're gathered together in the upper room in Jerusalem because this is a festival week. Everybody that was able in Israel even those that lived outside of Israel who were converted to Judaism would have traveled, if possible, to Jerusalem. It would have been throngs of people shoulder to shoulder in Jerusalem, just as it would have been some short two months before during the Passover. And the Holy Spirit descends upon 
Peter, who speaks here in the text that we read, and the other disciples, and they go out into the streets proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And people are really taken aback by this because uh, people have traveled from different places and they speak different languages, but everybody is able to understand by the power of the Spirit what these men are saying. And this really accounts for the first true Christian sermon in the history of the church. Outside of those sermons that Jesus preached during his earthly ministry, this is the first sermon that we see. And it begins in verse 22 by Peter addressing the, those who are gathered, the, who he calls the men of Israel. He gets their attention now that they've been drawn to this spectacle. And he says this, hear my words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Peter begins his sermon, this first sermon of the Christian church on the day of Pentecost by pointing people towards Jesus, the impossible Jesus, the Jesus that should not have existed according to logic. Say, why? Why, why? why would you say that according to logic, Jesus wouldn't have existed? Well, let's think about what one of the gospel authors tells us about this Jesus. There are four books of the Bible known as the gospels. Each one of them tell an account of the life of Jesus. The gospel of John begins this way. In the beginning was the word. Now the word word is capitalized because it is representing Jesus. Jesus is the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him not anything was made that was made. And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What John tells us is that the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, having eternally existed with the father and the one through whom all things were created, became a part of creation itself. The eternal merged with the temporal, the divine merged with the secular and the human Without this, none of the rest of what I'm going to talk about matters. Without this truth, it is only a good man who died at the hands of sinful men all those years ago in Jerusalem. Without this truth, a Jewish sect lost its somewhat radical leader. Without this, the story ends. We must first recognize that this Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth that Peter is talking about and is going to proclaim here in that day and that we stand to worship today and I am proclaiming to you is God made flesh. And that, my friends, is impossible. You see, it's impossible for fully God to also be fully man. It's impossible for the eternal to merge and to meld with the temporal and yet that is exactly what the scriptures tell us happened in Jesus. The impossible took place. And that at just the right time, God, who has eternally existed, became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Peter says, he proved it. He proved his nature. He proved who he was. 
He continues there. He says, he was attested to you by God with many what? Mighty works, wonders, and signs. Now, Israel's not a very big place. And this didn't happen all that long ago in the course of events that Peter's talking. Jesus' ministry lasted likely from three to four years. He would have only been crucified 50 days before that. These people would have heard the stories of the resurrection. They would have likely heard of the conspiracy that, that Jews and Romans were saying that they had stolen the body and making that accusation against his disciples. People would have heard these things that Jesus had done. He even did some of these things in their midst in Jerusalem the week that they crucified him. So what are these mighty works, wonders, and signs that attest to the impossible divinity and humanity of Jesus? If we go to Matthew chapter 8, which is another one of the four gospels that tells us of the life of Jesus, Jesus preaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the most famous sermon of Jesus' ministry known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest um, recorded sermon of Jesus. And after that, he does these several healings right in a row. And they're all different. The first one in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, it says, when he came down from the mountain, that's the mountain where he was doing the uh, we gave the Sermon on the Mount. Great crowds followed it. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy left him. Now, leprosy in the first century was the disease that nobody wanted. They didn't want it so bad that they would, and we ought to be able to identify with this some, they would quarantine anybody who had it. All right. And listen, their quarantine was worse than ours. They didn't even let these people live in the same house, the same neighborhood or the same city. You got leprosy and you had to go live outside of your village. Now, this is in ancient times where people pretty much lived in the same place their whole lives. But if you got leprosy, you didn't get to stay there. You had to go outside. And this guy comes to Jesus as he comes down the mountain and he asked Jesus to make him clean and Jesus stretches out his hand and touched him, which is something no one would ever do to a leper and cleansed him. And the Bible says immediately he was healed. This first healing of Jesus shows the power of the physical realm that he is able to heal someone who has what was the most stigmatic disease of the day. We keep reading in Matthew 8 and we get to verse 23 where Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples they go out on the Sea of Galilee and we're told that a great storm arose on the sea so that the boat was swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. So all this is going on around Jesus, he's the bottom of the boat asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm. So not only does Jesus have the ability to heal a leper, demonstrating his power over the physical realm, but now Jesus is doing something that nobody should be able to do. He looks at the winds and the waves and says, stop, and they stop. Now listen, there have been lots of people throughout history that have been able to fool people into thinking they have great powers, but nobody can do this. This is impossible. Nobody has the ability to speak to the winds and the waves and to tell them to stop and they stop. Jesus demonstrates here by being able to calm the storm, his power over the natural realm. There is obviously something more to this man if he is able to speak to wind and waves and tell them to stop. Once they get to the other side on that calm water, they get to the other side 
And they encounter two men in verse 28 who are demon-possessed. And they come out of the tomb so fierce that no one would pass that way. These men were so possessed that nobody would take the road past them. But Jesus does. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged them, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep banks into the sea and drowned in the water. Jesus demonstrates here his power over the spiritual realm. That even these demon-possessed men, these demons who recognize Jesus as the Son of God, can't stand against him. See, his power over the physical, over the natural, and over the spiritual. At the end of the story of the calming of the storm, the disciples were told, verse 27, look at one another and they say, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Nobody should be able to do what this guy did. It's impossible. Oh, but it gets even better than this. You see, it's not just his ability to show his authority over the physical and the natural and the spiritual, but Jesus does something that truly no one should ever be able to do. In Luke chapter seven, we're told Jesus is on his way from Galilee, which is in Northern Israel, to Jerusalem. He's kind of doing ministry along the way. He comes to a town there. There's great crowds with him. And as he drew near to that town, there was a man, we're told in verse 12 of Luke seven, who had died and was being carried out the only son of his mother. She was a widow and had a considerable crowd from the town with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Now catch this. And this report about him spread through, through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. So when Peter, on the day of Pentecost, stands and says, this Jesus of Nazareth, this impossible God-made man who was attested to you by many signs and wonders, who had the ability to heal lepers and calm storms and cast out demons, and who had the ability to raise the dead to life, and yes, we know you've heard about it because the story about this guy went everywhere. This impossible Jesus of Nazareth, God, God made flesh, demonstrated his power and authority over both life and death. And it is this Jesus that Peter proclaims. Number two, the impossible death, resurrection, and ascension. He picks up in verse 23 by saying, this Jesus Make no mistake, this one you've heard about, this one that we should think of as impossible, who did the impossible, him, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's great theological truth here in Acts 2, verse 23. And if I can just give you a little bit of, little bit of help, some of the, one of the best phrases you can learn in, in Bible reading is this, both and. You don't need to gravitate towards one half of this verse and not the other. You see, God has the ability of making two things that seem opposed to one another both be true. And that's what's happening here in verse 23. That Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
meaning that the Lord's divine providence has been at work to work out his redemptive plan since the very beginning. That's on one hand. On the other is that you crucified. Peter's looking at these men and said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So on one hand, we have the divine providence of God working the plan of redemption. And on the other, we have vast earthly injustice that was done to Jesus. The one guy that didn't deserve it suffered a horrendous, terrible sinner's death on the cross. And Peter says both of these things are true, that God was at work and those who put Jesus on the cross are fully responsible for their actions. But do you know it's never the death of Jesus, or at least rarely, the death of Jesus that people want to question as if it was possible? There are people outside of the church that'll say, sure, I believe Jesus lived. Sure, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. Sure, I believe Jesus ended up at the wrong place at the wrong time and some bad people, namely some Romans, you know, put him on a cross because he was challenging their authority. He was getting a little too big for his britches. He was getting too big of a following, so they killed him for it, right? He was challenging the the religious elite and the politically powerful. And so they killed him for it. And that's kind of the way the story ends for people. But shouldn't we question knowing what we've already seen, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he has the power over the physical and the natural and the spiritual and even over death itself. Shouldn't we question the fact that could Jesus actually die? Knowing what we've known and having seen what we've seen, shouldn't we say, is it it impossible? possible for these men to kill Jesus? And yet the scriptures clearly tell us he died. You see, he didn't just fall asleep. He didn't go into a coma. There were Roman soldiers whose very lives depended on the fact that those who were crucified were actually dead when they came from the cross. They ensured that of Jesus. On that day, crucified on a Roman cross, the son of God died impossible, right? We get to verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So it was impossible for death to hold him. So God raised him up. We skip to verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all, we all are witnesses. He says, we, these 120 people that stand before you now, we've all seen it with our eyes. We spent time with him. The resurrection It's impossible, right? It's impossible for a dead man to come to life. But Jesus was different. Now, those verses that we skipped, I read them at the beginning. What Peter's doing, he's speaking to a Jewish crowd, so he makes a Jewish appeal. He appeals to one of the patriarchs. He appeals to David, King David, the most well-respected, well-thought-of king in Israelite history, who wrote many of the Psalms of the Old Testament. And he actually quotes from Psalm 16 where David writes about not being abandoned to Sheol, which is death, not being abandoned to death. And here's what Peter says. David, as great as he was, as much as we love him, died. And here's what he says. Not only do we know that he died, but we could go to his tomb that's still there today. It was still there in that day. You can go to Israel now and go to Jerusalem and they'll take you to what is believed to be the tomb of David because David's still dead. He's still in his tomb, but not Jesus because Jesus is different because the grave could not hold him. 
Speaking of this truth in John 10, Jesus says this about himself. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Discharge I have received from my father. When the divine took on the temporal, when God became flesh, What came with it was the authority to both willingly lay down his life. Listen, Jesus wasn't taken by surprise. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. Jesus wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus died willingly, going to the cross, knowing what he would suffer, but also fully knowing that he had the authority for that life to be taken up again. We keep reading. Get to verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured poured this out that yourselves are seeing and hearing. Skip to verse 33, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, the physical, bodily, eternal resurrection of Jesus isn't the end. We're not just celebrating the resurrection today. We're also celebrating the fact that Sometime after Jesus was resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. That Jesus now rules and reigns for all time. He now has all authority and dominion. The cruel crown of thorns placed on his head as a torturous mocking reminder of his claims during his earthly ministry is now an eternal crown in glory. Those verses there, 34 and 35, Uh, that we skipped here in this reading, Peter appeals again to to a Psalm of David, where David says, the Lord, in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, David, when he wrote that, was the earthly king of Israel. There was no one in the land greater than him. So for him to say the Lord, he's obviously talking about God, but then he says, the Lord said to my Lord. It's God talking to himself, well, kind of, It's one person of the Godhead, the Father, talking to another, the Son. So what David is doing again is he's prophesying about the fact that everyone, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the resurrection even wasn't the end, but that one day he would ascend to the right hand of God, having all dominion and authority. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. And we look at that and say, there's just no way. Logic tells me these things can't happen. Number three, the impossible salvation of sinners. In verse 37, we read, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you look at the deity of Jesus, this idea that the word became flesh and you think that's impossible. If you look at the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and you think that's impossible, then you should definitely look at the salvation of men and think that's impossible. It's absolutely impossible for man to be right with God because God is perfect. He is holy in his purposes and in his being that eternally God has been 
and will forever be completely set apart and different than everything else in his creation. And we are not. I am not perfect. Neither are you, my friend. And because of that, what the Bible calls sin, we are forever separated by, from God because of that sin. We have no hope to save ourselves. We have no ability to save ourselves. It is completely impossible. You know, the apostle Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter two. Listen to verse 12 first. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 12 is true of every single person who has ever lived. It's true of every person in this room and every person listening to us online. It's true of you either in the past tense or in the present tense. That you either were, as he writes here in the past tense because he's writing to believers, you either were separated from Christ, alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenant of God, having no hope and completely without God, or you currently are those things. You either were those things or you are those things. There's no escaping those two facts. And if you've never come to the understanding that that's who you once were, then let me tell you something. You're not the other. (laughs) These things aren't past tense true of you unless you came to that realization at some point. So where Paul begins in Ephesians 2, 12, really isn't very good news. Is it? What he's saying is you're completely and utterly separated from God and there's nothing you can do about it. Then we get to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. God has made a way through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. You see, more impossible than the son of God becoming flesh, more impossible than the son of God being killed, more impossible than the resurrection is the impossibility of you saving yourself. We who are far off, and Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 2 that Peter uses in his sermon there in Acts chapter 2. We who are far off, though have a way. There is on our own no hope to span that chasm of sin that has separated us from God. But in Jesus Christ, we find hope. The blood of Christ brings us near. Yes, all of this from our perspective is impossible. But here's the good news. The Lord has accomplished the impossible so that you might be saved. Yes, I agree with you. It's impossible. But God can do the impossible. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 19, verse 26. He looks at his disciples and says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Not some things not things that we can understand and comprehend and put in a nice, neat little box, not things that we you know, can, can make fit in our little worldview, but all things in God are possible. And he has accomplished the impossible so that you, my friend, might be saved today. And that's what happened in Acts 2. Peter stands up and preaches this to them. 
And they're told, we're told they're cut to the heart and they say, what, what, what must we do? And they say, be baptized, repent of your sins, turn towards Jesus alone. And here's what happens in verses 40 and 41. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation, recognize your sin. That's what that means. So those who received his words were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What started that morning with 120 became 3,000 plus in an instant because God has the ability to change hearts. And there in that moment, it's exactly what he did. And here now, God can change yours. Here now, God can reach into your life by the blood of Jesus Christ and save you from your sins. You say, well, how do I know if that's true for me? Listen, listen clearly. If you're, if you're hearing my voice today, it's for you. If you're hearing my voice today, all you need to do is turn away from sin and self and turn towards Christ and he will hear you. You say, well, how can I know that? Well, let's go to what Peter says just before where we started. Because we started in verse 22, but that's not really where Peter started. Where he started was an explanation of why things seem kind of crazy. And he appeals to the Old Testament prophet Joel about in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And that's what had happened there at Pentecost. And before really starting his sermon about Jesus, the last thing Peter says, quoting Joel, is this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen, my friend, this is you. This is you. Call on his name today. You are that everyone you would talk about impossible. Some of you think, preacher, it's impossible for God to save me. It may be possible for you. You obviously kind of maybe have your life all together. It's, it, maybe it's possible for some of these other people in here because they seem to have gotten things all together. But if you only know where I've been, if you only know what I've said, if you only know what I've done, it would be impossible for God to save me. Listen to me. That everyone, my friend, is you today. It's you Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on his name today. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't allow this moment to pass you by. Call on him today and the promise of scripture will be true in your life. You will be saved. That's all you need to know. So if you call upon him, believing that Jesus is the impossible, that he is the God made flesh, that he did the impossible, dying in your place, being raised to life by the power of God. He now is seated at the right hand of God. Then he will one day return for us. You believe that, my friend. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what's happened in your past. None of that means anything because God can overcome all of that in your life. If he can save this sinner, he can save you. If you'll but believe in that today, be saved because the Lord has accomplished the impossible so that you might come to faith in him. Will you take that step today? Will you trust in that today? Now hear me, just quickly, let me speak to church people. Church people, we hear about some of these impossibles and you think, well, I've never thought about it like that. I've always kind of patted myself on the back and think, look at me, I've figured it out. Look at me, I've, I've always been kind of good and I was raised good. And yeah, I've done a few things bad, but in the main, I'm, I'm pretty good and I've got, all this, I've got all this figured out and these other people, you know, they're not like me. Listen, if that's you, 
If that's your attitude today, then I will say this with confidence. You've never come to Christ either because you've never fully recognized the nature of your sin. You've never recognized just how separated you were from God and you too should come to him today. Look, church membership, church attendance, good works, none of that stuff gets us anywhere with God because all of that is just our trying and our effort and our efforts never going to live up. But Jesus in your place accomplishes the impossible for you so that you right here, right now can be right with God. Will you believe that? Call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Let's pray together. God, now I ask you to do what only you can do, to take hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh. Hearts of stone that have always said, this is impossible. It's, I, I, just, I, I don't see how all of this can work. Will you overcome that doubt in their minds? Draw them to yourself. Hearts of stone, like the, the ones who would say, I'm, I'm gonna earn my way there. I'm gonna do it on my own. I'm gonna, I'm gonna grit my teeth and, and bear down and make sure that, that I, I please God with my life. Let them know that there's never enough they could do. Turn their hearts of stone and hearts of flesh. Oh God, would you take people who call upon your name now and save them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.